0: Welcome to the View from Apollo, a podcast where we discuss current macroeconomic trends and break down how they'll impact our investors. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. I'm chief economist here at Apollo Global Management. Each episode, I'll be joined by leaders from across our business who will share their unique perspective on the market factors that are shaping sectors and investment strategies. You can catch new episodes by subscribing to the View from Apollo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or by visiting our homepage, apollo.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The View from Apollo. I recently joined Nick Milliken, Head of Investment Strategy at KAIS, on his podcast KAIS CXO to discuss inflation, rising rates, and a divergent macroeconomic environment.
1: Tune in now to hear the episode, and as always, thanks for listening. Welcome everybody to season two, episode seven of the CASE CXO podcast series. I'm your host, Nick Milliken, head of investment strategy here at CASE. And today I'm joined by a very special guest and someone that we're very excited to have on board, Torsten Slock, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, welcome. How are you going?
0: Very well. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Excellent. So let's talk about this. You're chief economist at one of the most well-renowned private equity firms in the world. How did you get to where you are?
0: So, uh, well, the long story is that uh, I studied economics in university, and then I did a PhD in economics. And in that process, I spent a year at a U.S. university. And one of the professors told me, well, you should do an internship at the IMF in Washington, DC. And I did that. And after that, I worked at the IMF for four years. Uh, Then I worked uh, for one year with a bank in New York. Then I worked for two years with the OECD in Paris. And in 2005, one of my former colleagues from the IMF asked me if I wanted to come back to the US, and in this case to New York to work for Deutsche Bank, where I worked for 15 years. And then two years ago, uh, I started talking to Apollo. I had been speaking to them, of course, for many years about markets, about the economy. And uh, now that I've been here for two years, it's just been very exciting, uh, very interesting. A lot of things going on in the alternative asset management space. So um, it's uh, been a very uh, exciting and interesting journey. And uh, it's been very interesting to go from the sell side to uh, the buy side and seeing some of the things that we are looking at in alternative asset management.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time for alternatives in general. But the broader economic environment is actually shaping up to be quite interesting. We've obviously got tightening here in the US and globally. Um, but what made you make that move from an IGO like, an I, like the IMF or the OECD into the private sector? Like, was there something specific that you thought there was more opportunity or that you could apply your trade a little bit more? Was there something a passion that was driving you?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. I mean, at many uh, government institutions like the IMF and the OECD and and the Fed and the ECB, there are a lot of resources, there are a lot of very smart people, uh, very highly educated, incredibly knowledgeable about really anything in the global economy. Uh, For example, the IMF has 1000 economists on staff. Uh, So there's a lot of skills and a lot of interesting debates and seminars and discussions I just felt that um, in many cases, I was asked, and this is the type of work that you do in those organizations, uh, I was asked to do a report and come back in four or five months with an answer. Uh, And in some cases, uh, unfortunately, things move either against or with or away from whatever topic that we were working on. So I would like, uh, and I was interested in the hamster wheel spinning a little bit faster. So that's why um, a lot of the things in financial markets, a lot of the things uh, that you, of course, also cover here on uh, on this uh, great uh, show uh, were really attracting me in the sense of, uh, well, we can maybe not come with a complete six months or five months answer to this question, uh, but maybe we can come up with a little bit faster answer and therefore have a discussion here and now about how should we think about this problem that inflation is too high or the Fed is raising rates or there's some geopolitical uncertainty or commodity prices going up. How should we form our views about those different trends that are happening? So the answer was that um, I was attracted to the speed and, and the intellectual curiosity of how is the process of thinking about and the thought leadership process in terms of thinking about financial markets uh, uh, in financial markets. And that's what made me jump to the private sector from the government sector.
1: Okay, interesting. So you touched on a few things that are driving markets right now, market themes and trends. And you know, you've know you highlighted three key themes for your market outlook uh, right now, which is the permanence of inflation, that you think there's going to be more Fed hikes coming, um, and that Fed QE has obviously ended. And I want to touch on each of them um, and the ramifications for the market. But you believe that over 2022, we'll see higher rates, wider credit spreads, and less support for equities. So starting with inflation, Torsten, um, both headline and core inflation are meaningful above meaningfully above the Fed's two percent target. Um, the Fed long held on to that narrative of transitory inflation, maybe a little bit too long last year. Um, but what did you see at that time that led you to believe that inflation was more sticky than the Fed had initially thought?
0: No, that that's right, Nick. this is and I, I, in my view, I think this is absolutely the the number one issue, in other words, the first domino brick, for thinking about asset allocation, not only in public markets, also in alternatives, is really all about what is your outlook for inflation. And exactly as you're highlighting, initially, inflation was just really transitory because there are four factors that are driving inflation higher at the moment. Number one, supply chain problems. Number two, energy problems. Number three is that wages are going up. And number four is that home prices are going up. The two first things, namely supply chain and energy, those things are temporary. And what I mean by temporary is that eventually, I know it will take quite some time, both on supply chain and definitely also on energy, before those things get squared out. But the way we measure inflation as a 12-month window, almost by definition, we will after and initially we thought a few quarters now it might be up to a year we will eventually begin to see the supply chain problems go away and as bad as the energy problems are today in terms of supply and demand continuously moving up after Covid is going away we will also eventually get some solution to the energy issue in terms of therefore energy prices at least beginning to stabilize and ultimately beginning to go down and that was initially what the Fed spoke about namely that we have a transitory inflation problem and they were really mainly talking about supply chain and energy the problem was that we moved from a transitory inflation problem to a more permanent inflation problem now, because in the meantime, we reached full employment and wages have, of course, gone up. And the employment report that we got for March showed wages growing more than 5% year over year, which is much higher than the historical average of 3%. So wage growth is very strong at the moment across all indicators, both on average hourly earnings, also on the employment cost index, on uni labor cost, whatever indicator that you look at for the labor market, wages are going up the unemployment rate low. So that's a more permanent problem that really only can get resolved if the Fed begins to raise rates and cool down demand, demand in the economy, demand for labor. And finally, home prices have also been going up. And that's also a more permanent problem in the sense that the latest data from Case Schiller shows that home prices are going up almost 20% year over year. So that's also something that really can only get fixed, if you will, if the Fed gradually or at the moment more quickly begins to raise mortgage rates and cool inflation down. So the short answer to your question is that we moved from a transitory temporary inflation problem. And the Fed was right to say that this was temporary to now having a more permanent inflation problem. And during that process, of course, the Fed has begun to say, we got to hike rates faster and faster and faster. And that's exactly as we speak, the reason why the market is beginning to price in more rate hikes, because that inflation problem has just become more immediate with now. The latest inflation data in very plain English is telling you inflation is 8%. And the Fed has a target that inflation should be 2%. So that's obvious. That's much, much higher than where they would like inflation to be. And that's why the Fed and the market is now talking so much more about we need to tighten financial conditions. We need to hike rates.
1: Employment's one of those ones where, you know, people are getting a, a, a pay hike, right, from increases in costs and all that kind of stuff. So it's very hard to take that back. That becomes sort of self-fulfilling, right? That people's expectations get baked in. You talked about this on your most recent podcast, um, The View from Apollo. Where you, where yes, we're back to employment levels like we had pre-pandemic. But what about the participation rate? You know, we've still got people that aren't have left the workforce and haven't come back in. You know, be it that they took their stimulus money and they're still using that. Maybe they made some money on crypto or whatever it is. But you know, we we haven't seen people come back in. Are you expecting participation to tick up as well?
0: Yeah, this is really important. I mean, again, if the temporary forces of inflation, namely supply chain and energy, will get resolved, then we should exactly be studying, Well, how long time will wage inflation be? Be so high and for that matter how long time will home price inflation be so high but just talking about wage inflation exactly as you're saying the issue was of course with covid that the labor force participation rate went down which is a fancy way of saying that there were a significant amount of people in the u.s economy and in the global economy that were impacted by covid and have just simply not come back to the labor market quite yet so that's why a very important issue here is that if we think about how many people got COVID in the U.S. up to this point, it's about 80 million. Medical studies shows you that roughly 30% of those uh, have long COVID consequences. So that means the labor supply is likely being, and that's now we're talking about 15, 20 million people, therefore the labor supply is likely being held back by a number of people still being impacted by COVID. And that's probably a very important reason why wages are going up that there's just a lot of people who are still not able to come out and take a job. We have seen with wages going up, we have seen more people come back to the labor market, but we're still seeing very strong wage growth in the data that we've had for the last three months in the employment report, also from the Atlanta Fed measures of wage growth also going up similarly. So to your question, it becomes very important for us to think about how quickly will the participation rate come back up? In other words, even if wages going up is not enough, to get people to come back to the labor market, well, maybe this is still an issue that's impacted by long COVID and by COVID implications, either because of people themselves having long COVID or suffering from long COVID, or because some family members, parents or grandparents or your children, meaning that your daycare or your childcare is not fully up to where they were before. So there's a number of very important really unknown things going on in terms of how quickly can we get the participation rate back up, as you're saying, because if the participation rate, if more people come back, that should begin to dampen wage growth and therefore ultimately also dampen the third force pushing inflation up and therefore give some relief in terms of how quickly the Fed should be raising rates. But that's not what we see at the moment. And that's exactly why the market is pricing in eight or nine rate hikes. we have been flipping a little bit here more recently between those two numbers at the moment for the rest of the year on top of the rate hike that we already got in the middle of March.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned commodity prices, Torsten. So JPM came out and said they see a potential for 40% upside in commodity prices if investors start using commodities themselves to hedge this inflationary pressure now that it's more persistent. Is that possible? And how would such a scenario feed into inflation maybe negatively in a feedback loop?
0: I think that that uh, it's possible that commodity price will continue to go up. And there are three reasons for this. First of all, uh, of course, uh, the uh, situation in Ukraine uh, magnified a lot of the supply chain problems in the global economy not only on energy of course from Russia but also on wheat and other commodities we also had some issues in nickel markets uh, uh, of course in late February so one first answer is that there's certainly a lot of upward pressure on commodity price in particular of course in energy on the back of sanctions and all the issues that have gone into the lower supply in energy markets relative to demand still being very strong uh, the second reason is that on top of that we already had supply chain issues not only from ukraine and russia but supply chain issues globally that also were pushing up on commodity prices because as we came out of omicron and covid and things are gradually getting better and global demand started going up then commodity prices, because of rising global demand combined with the supply chain problems, should also still be moving higher. And the third and final reason why there are reasons to be uh, uh, constructive on commodity prices is exactly as you highlight, that more and more investors are looking at a situation where if rates are going up in the front end, and now with the Fed running down the balance sheet a little bit faster, that's also pushing rates up in the long end of the yield curve. That means that fixed income, in treasuries and in rates is becoming less attractive and if there is inflation the textbook will tell you that you should be buying real assets and one real asset that you could be buying is of course to buy commodities so there's a list of reasons why i think that it does make sense to be constructive on commodities and one very important point on the first argument is of course that the issue of commodities going up is not as such driven by what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but it's really happening more on the sanctions side. And if sanctions are likely to stay here for potentially quite some time, potentially at least least until the end of this year and maybe for several years, that's certainly also something that will continue to create more downward pressure on supply of commodities and therefore more upward pressure on commodity prices.
1: Does this accelerate the green transition, though? I mean, I think back in the day, the you know, 18 months ago, the argument was that commodities were just so cheap. So comparatively, you know, the cost of clean energy was, you know, on par. But, you know, we have this infrastructure in place. Does this accelerate you know, maybe Europe or Western Europe's, you know, move away from Eastern European uh, commodities and into green technology and energy.
0: Absolutely, uh, this will speed up the transition uh, to renewables, to uh, uh, green energy in any shape and form. Uh, and we are already seeing a lot more interest in that uh, in the way markets have traded since the 24th of February. Uh, so, in that sense, it's very clear that uh, that this is certainly something that will be one very important consequence of or oh, a mega trend. Uh, we have talked about different mega trends. Um, of things that are happening after February the 24th. And this is definitely the the most important one. The only issue of course is that this is something that's very difficult to do very quickly. Uh, Unfortunately, if you are a company in say in Germany or Europe or in the US, and you use uh, in particular in the European case, natural gas from Russia, if you use uh, say oil on the global oil market, it's very difficult to just pull out the plug from natural gas and oil and just substitute with windmills or other things. So, in that sense, that transition also requires a lot of infrastructure investment, a lot of uh, investment, broadly speaking, across the whole uh, spectrum of the energy transition. So, it's a very broad theme that really is not only about oil prices and prices of natural gas, but really is also a lot about investment, even in something as broad as commercial real estate and infrastructure and real assets more broadly
1: yeah interesting moves there so the fed's very clearly in the driver's seat of the markets right now and we saw a pretty significant repricing of bonds into the start of the year you know bonds have had their worst year in you know depending on who you ask between 10 and 40 years either way um definitely not behaving the way that people have had become expected them to but, uh, you know, the market's pretty quickly anchored on, you know, se- you, you said, mentioned 8 to 9, 25 basis point rate hikes. You know, given the more recent hawkish pivot by the Fed, you know, the market's currently pricing in, you know, next May or next month, you know, one8 um, rate hikes of 25 basis points with you know, 86 by the end of the year, which leaves an implied rate of about 2.7%, which is significantly higher than what we've seen um, over the last decade or so. But recent statements by the Fed you know, have been even more hawkish than the market's expecting. So who's likely to be right, the Fed or the market?
0: Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, in some sense, if you think about what the Fed is trying to do, it is actually quite simple. The Fed is looking out of the window and saying inflation is, in round numbers, 8%. Our target is two. So this is very different from really the past many rate hike cycles we have seen. Because think about what happened in 2015, 16 and 17. At the time, inflation was actually below two. So that's why the Fed was not in a hurry. The Fed at the time looked at the data and said, well, inflation is below two. We're worried about future inflation. That's why we're going to raise rates at a measurable, gradual, slow pace, we're not in a hurry, because we can allow ourselves to go slowly to wait and see what inflation does. This is very different from today, where the Fed is looking at a substantially above target inflation number. And the implication, and this is really important, what you're saying, Nick, is that if the Fed wants to cool inflation down, not in the future, but here and now, what they need to do is really to Very broadly speaking, and this is what every FMC member that gives a speech, they talk about tightening financial conditions. And that's the code word for saying, we are going to raise interest rates. And the tool we normally have is short-term interest rates. But since the March 16th decision of the Fed to hike rate once, only 25 basis points, we actually have seen the stock market go up. We've seen credit spreads narrow. In other words, the market is not listening to the Fed saying we would like to tighten financial conditions. That's why more recently, several FMC members, including Leil Brainard recently went out and said, okay, we are still raising short rates, but if you don't want to listen and tighten financial conditions, we are also now going to run down the balance sheet faster which is another way of saying we're actually going to try to sell some treasuries. And remember, when you sell treasuries, so here it's about the runoff of treasuries. But bottom line, if you shrink your balance sheet in terms of holdings of treasuries, that runs the risk, of course, that long rates also will be moving higher. So that's why the key conclusion is I think the Fed is looking at financial conditions and saying, well, if you in stock markets don't want to tighten, meaning don't want stocks to go down, if you in credit markets don't want credit spreads to widen, but instead have them to narrow, we are then going to continue to push harder and harder on the only tool we have, namely short rates and long rates in an attempt to try to tighten financial conditions. Because what is the goal? The goal is to try to cool inflation down here and now, not in the future. And if financial conditions don't tighten enough, in other words, to your question, if equities and credit don't wanna listen, Then the Fed must conclude, well then we just have to be even more hawkish, we have to hike rates in the front end even faster, and we may have to run down our balance sheet even faster in an attempt to try to cool the economy down here and now. So there are measures, as you know, uh, of financial conditions in, in various ways where you throw into the kitchen sink a measure of the S&P 500, the IG spread, the high yield spread, the level of short rates and long rates, and you take the common variation that these indicators have and ask how correlated it to GDP. And that measure of financial conditions really has to tighten to make sure that GDP and earnings starts to be under more pressure. So in very plain English, The answer here to your question is that the goal for the Fed is to slow down inflation, to slow down growth. And for us in markets, that's another way of saying that the Fed wants the E in the P-E ratio, meaning earnings, to slow down. And that's a quite worrying outlook for me when I think about what's the outlook for equities? And what I think about is the outlook for credit. So the short answer to your very great question is that I think the Fed is very keen on getting inflation under control at almost any cost because Volcker did that in 79 and in the 80 recession. And they have been saying very clearly, even if this comes with a recession, we gotta get inflation and inflation expectations down because we don't want the U.S. to turn into an emerging market where inflation and inflation expectations become unanchored because that comes with much higher costs than the cost of having a very brief recession to get inflation under control. So the, 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 the bottom line is, there is a very important disconnect between what markets are trading and how markets are trading, particularly in equities and credit at the moment and what the Fed wants to achieve.
1: It's a pretty aggressive pivot, though. I mean, it's the market, you know, sort of calling BS on the Fed that they're actually going to go and do this? Like, forward guidance is obviously a policy, an unconventional monetary policy that the Fed's been employing since the, the the financial crisis, and you know, we're seeing that's almost exactly what they're doing. They're trying to re-anchor expectations that you know the market's saying, well, we're going to go ahead, and you guys are going to come back in, and you're going to be the buyer of last resort always. Is that not the case? We we've got we've, we've seen a very significant shift in Fed policy here. I
0: think, and that's absolutely right. Uh, so. You could definitely ask, what's the rush? I mean, why are they so worried? And, I, and as we just spoke about, there are some reasons why inflation should be coming down. So those things should start to go away. So maybe we'll not have 8% inflation. should be going down to like uh, 4, 5, 6 over the next uh, 6, 8 quarters. I think that the reason why the Fed feels this urgency now is that, first of all, there's a smaller issue that inflation expectations in five year, five year break evens and in financial market 10 year break evens have actually started to go up. So the Fed is a little bit worried that financial markets are beginning to worry about that the Fed does not have inflation under control. As much as that's really, really important, I think that that's a little bit secondary relative to the most important thing and that is the simple observation that we all feel and all see with our own eyes it's becoming more expensive to fill gas on your car it's becoming more expensive to buy food it's becoming more expensive to buy a used car a new car it's becoming more expensive to buy a house and all this is beginning to have very significant implications on consumer sentiment consumer sentiment indicators are literally at the lowest level in 10 years And you asked the question well the unemployment rate is at the same level it was pre-pandemic namely around 3.5 3.6 so that's a really low and very tight labor market and we just spoke about wages going up why are consumers not saying wow, everything is great. Why are consumers saying no, everything is getting worse and worse? Because they're getting more and more worried and they're getting more and more impacted by inflation. And that's the Fed's ultimate fear and nightmare, namely that inflation expectations begin to spill over that consumers say, well, I just simply can't afford things. I got to cut back and a potentially cut back a lot. And likewise, well, if I can't afford it and the labor market is very tight, maybe I should be asking for much higher wage increases and therefore wage inflation expectations start to go up. So it really is this risk, and I don't say this likely that U.S. inflation and U.S. wage formation really risks turning into what we normally in emerging markets have seen in decades. Central banks try to get inflation and inflation expectations under control because once the horses out of the barn with inflation and inflation expectations, it can become very difficult and very, very expensive in terms of GDP, consumption, and where the economic outlook is if inflation expectations are unanchored. So, and you could say, well, this is a little bit of an academic fear. But the worry at the Fed is that this academic fear comes out with a genie fully out of the bottle and then the problem is how do we get this under control given how incredibly difficult this has been in particular in emerging markets but also in past history once inflation became too high. So that's why I think that the Fed is very keen and this is also why Jay Powell has been saying that Paul Volcker was one of the greatest civil servants ever. Because Paul Volcker managed to say, I am willing to risk and basically have the cost of a short uh, recession if it comes at the benefit of getting inflation under control again.
1: So we should expect that the Fed continues with the uh, very hawkish uh, outlook until the market stops fighting the Fed and uh, comes around to it. That's absolutely right. right.
0: That's really important because normally you and I would say, well, there is a Fed put. That if markets go down mm, then the right. fed will basically step back and say okay we're now going to turn more dovish because we can't have stock markets going down that creates wealth effects consumers are going to spend less that's going to create problems for gdp but in this case the fed put is just not there because there's a much more immediate problem namely that inflation out there is dramatically at eight percent dramatically above the feds target of two percent so that's the starting point that's why i think that investors across all asset classes, not only so far, we've only really mainly spoke about public markets, but also in private markets, it's really important to have that thought process of, how do we get inflation under control? Because that's the first domino brick that drives all asset allocation decisions, in my view.
1: Yeah I mean we've been talking about this as financial professionals for years right the fed put should the fed's third mandate be to support you know risk asset markets and I don't think anyone agrees that that's true and we're finally getting what we want which is a return to normalized monetary and, and fiscal policy and you know now people are saying well we want that put option. But anyway, yeah. let's move on. Torsten, you and I could talk about this for a long time. But another area of disconnect that you've noted um, is between the rates and equity markets. And you pointed to the breakdown in correlations between the move index and the VIX index, so implied volatility across those markets. You know, what does that mean to you? And what does that really mean for risk assets? Yeah, this is also
0: really important because this is linked to this issue that inflation is a major issue for rates. It's a major issue for the Fed. So as a result, we have seen swaps and vol, the move index, volatility in fixed income go up because people are beginning to debate. And remember, implied vol measures with options that people are putting real bets with real money on what is the outcome of where we're going in the future. And volatility in short rates and volatility in fixed income is now so elevated that it's at levels that we saw during covid in march of 2020 so that's telling you that there's a lot of disagreement a lot of uncertainty about what is the fed going to do what will happen to inflation people are with real bets putting money on either inflation is going to be a problem for a long time other people are putting money bets on no no inflation will go away and it will very very quickly will no longer be a problem because the dispersion of views is telling you that where we are going in terms of outcomes is a very very wide distribution so that's what rates markets are telling us if i'm instead turn and look at VIX. VIX is slightly above 20, and that's actually been going down. It's almost as if equity investors are saying, oh, this thing about inflation, that has nothing to do with us. That's an issue just for rates, that's just an issue for, for the Fed. That's not really important for me in equities. I think that still equities will continue to do well. The problem is, and the reason for this disconnect that exactly as you're highlighting, is that I think that equity investors, this is just the way we are organized in financial markets, equity investors really have a horizon of the last and the next earning season. Very rarely do I speak to equity investors where they talk about the earnings season in, in two years' time. They say, what was the last earnings season? And the answer to that is that it was reasonable. And what is the next earnings season? It's probably also going to be OK, maybe a little bit weaker because wages are going up, energy prices going up, cost for distribution and logistics, which makes up around 12% for the average corporate of cost, is also going up. So that's supply chain problems. But still, it looks like in the short term things still are OK. But bond investors don't have the luxury of only looking forward to the next earnings season. If I'm a bond investor, I need to have a horizon of two or three years and in some cases a lot longer. So that means that I think that it simply has to do with the way that we are organized, that the equity market tends to have a shorter horizon. And that's just the way it is because the last earnings season is my benchmark for how I think about the future, whereas bond investors need to have a lot longer horizon. So that's why I think that this disconnect is telling you that, yeah, in the near term, things are okay. That's why the Fed is raising rates. But as a bond investor, if I think about eight, nine rate hikes, and I think about the Fed running down the balance sheet faster and long rates continuously going up, I think that in the next... 12, 18 months, that runs the risk that we might have a sharper slowdown. It could be a mild recession, but with that sharper slowdown, it will also become the case that therefore rates should be lower. But that discussion and to your question and the disconnect between equities, in other words, what is the narrative? I mean, at the end of the day in financial markets, stories are told about what's going to happen in the future. And the story that's being told in equities is just very different from the story that's being told in bond markets at the moment.
1: Are they just based on the difference in durations that these investor bases are looking at? Is this a zero sum game or is it possible that they could both win or both be right? So, of course, this is the
0: $64,000 question. I would say you can't have both the equity market right and the bond market right. You can't have that inflation is a huge problem in rates and the Fed got to get going with increasing interest rates without that having any implications for equities. Either inflation going up could be a problem for earnings, because if you add up, all the upward pressure on costs for corporates. I mean, if we think about it, wages, broadly speaking, make up roughly two thirds of cost for the average corporate in America and in Europe. Then on top of that, you have energy that makes up on average roughly a little bit less than 10% of cost. And as I mentioned, distribution and logistics makes up roughly also another roughly 10%. So you're already up to 80, 90% of cost where you're seeing inflation going up, which is exactly why, of course, many corporates at the moment are now just passing on The cost increases and the price increases to consumers. The issue is that, well, if that treats on creating inflation, then, of course, the Fed is going to step even harder on the brakes to really slow down revenue growth, ultimately with the idea of slowing down inflation. So the answer to that great question is that I don't think it is consistent what we're seeing in equity markets with what we're seeing in rates markets. You can't have with one hand that inflation is a big problem over here, namely rates for the Fed, and with the other hand for equities, oh, inflation, that's not a problem. I don't really worry about that. Either inflation is a problem, or inflation is not a problem. So in that sense, we will find out over the next several months what the right answer is, depending on how big a problem inflation is. It could be that equities are right. I happen to believe that the rates market is right, that inflation is a bigger problem. But there is, of course, therefore, this scenario where we will find out going forward, where we will see if it, at the moment, is it the bond markets that are priced right, or is it equity markets that are priced right.
1: Uh, fascinating. I'm going to be looking to that one to see what uh, what the outcome is, but it also has implications, obviously, for asset allocation decisions, and I want to get to that a little bit later. Um, you mentioned credit spreads being pretty tight, and you've highlighted several factors you think that could impact and cause a widening in those spreads. So QE ending, a slowing in earnings growth, you know, recession fear, a Fed rate hike, uh, the issue in Ukraine. Can you talk about a little bit more about each of these?
0: Yeah. So importantly. Of course, uh, and we, of course, uh, spend a lot of time talking about this at Apollo. Uh, very importantly at the moment, if rates are going up, then of course, floating rate credit has outperformed and one should expect that to continue. That's why loans in particular have outperformed and everything that's floating rate, really any financing is very, very attractive, of course, in a rising rates environment. Of course, when it comes to IG and high yield, it's a little bit more complex. But the short answer is that that we have seen after 15 years of very easy monetary policy, both through very low front end rates, a significant amount of QE, not only in the US, but also globally, that we have seen significant support to US credit markets from QE. So that's why now that QE ended here uh, in March, of course, it's not a surprise that we should begin to think about, well, if we have been arguing, all of us, that QE from global central banks has been so helpful for holding rates down, for narrowing credit spreads and for boosting the stock market. Well then we should probably expect that no when QE ends, we should probably expect the opposite to happen, and that's exactly what's happening. Rates are going up. Credit spreads have not quite whitened as much. They whitened a little bit, but now they've been coming in. So it's been a little bit more bumpy recently. But the bottom line is the credit spreads, of course, are at risk of now widening further because this call it artificial liquidity support that came not only from the US, from the Fed, also from the ECB and from the Bank of England. All that support is either stopped by the Fed or the ECB is probably going to end that over the next several quarters. And that will no longer provide this flow and this, call it, life support and automatic boost to credit spreads. And think about that also in the context of what we spoke about earlier, that if the Fed's goal is to tighten financial conditions, the goal is not only to lift the level of the yield curve, But the Fed will probably also think in terms of, well, maybe we also should have a goal of trying to widen credit spreads because that also is helpful in tightening financial conditions and therefore in cooling the economy down out there. So I would say the outlook, in particular for fixed rate credit, there's some finer details um, that we can talk about in terms of IG versus high yield. But broadly speaking, you want to be in floating rate. Uh, credit when rates are going up and the vulnerabilities broadly speaking in passive fixed income. I mean the passive IG index and the passive high yield index is down 10-15% year to date. I mean sometimes I run into people who say wow I didn't know I could lose money in IG. Uh, Well if you just type passive IG of course there's a risk that if rates go up that you could have some losses temporarily but that's why active asset management and credit selection and this is of course um, what active asset managers such as us do all day long is really what is the game changer that you got to be much more careful about what are you buying with the meaning from a rates going up perspective and the underlying themes of course being what's going on with supply chains, what's going on with energy, what's going on with housing, what's going on in those areas where labor costs are going up. So the, the answer to your question is that the credit spreads from a pure rates perspective are at risk of going wider because that's in some sense from a financial conditions perspective what the Fed is trying to achieve and I believe that they will be successful in raising rates and ultimately therefore in tightening financial conditions.
1: You touched on a good point there, which is the active management side of this, which is in an, in an environment where there is such dispersion between the performance of you know, asset classes across and within you know, sectors that you've got to be able to actively manage and move through this. This isn't a passive game where you can just buy cheap beta. And get exposure to something. There is going to be a difference between you know the best and worst performers, and and we certainly see that. Exactly. You also mentioned, um, yeah, you, you, the credit markets have never been more vulnerable to rising rates for three reasons. Can you run us through what they are and what that means for the asset class itself?
0: Yeah. So for for credit markets specifically, and in particular for IG, uh, there's a number of things that are unique at the moment. Uh, the first thing is, of course, that the average rating in IG. Has gone down. Uh, think about it in the IG index, the passive index uh, 50% is now rated triple B. Uh, this is a lot higher than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So the first observation is that the credit quality in your IG index, if you just buy the passive IG index, has been deteriorating. The second thing is that debt levels in the corporate sector have gone up. Uh, And they have gone up basically on a trend for the last many decades. So that means that by definition, if interest rates go up, then your debt servicing costs, at least over time, will also be going up. So that means that also the vulnerability, simply because debt levels are higher, interest rates going up is also higher than it has ever been before so think about it if i have more debt than i had 10 years ago and interest rates start going up of course then i will have less money for consumption and in this case for companies for capex because they need to spend more money on debt servicing costs so that's the second argument the third argument is that if you look at the duration of the ig index that has actually very broadly speaking never been longer than it is at the moment and what i mean by that is that companies when interest rates were low they took the opportunity which was exactly what was the whole idea to issue very long dated debt and therefore the duration of the IG index in particular modified duration went up modified duration went up to 9% that means that for in plain english a 1% increase in 10 year rates would today create an 8 9% decline in your index of IG that's very different from 10 years ago where modified duration was closer to 5 and 6 saying that the vulnerability to long rates going up has increased. So in summary, to your point, we have seen credit quality deteriorate not only for IG, also for high yield, but in particular for IG, And that's, of course, creating more vulnerabilities when rates start going up. We've also seen debt levels go up. That's also creating more vulnerabilities to interest rates going up. And third and finally, and this is a more market technical issue, but when duration of any bond index goes up, you also simply by definition become more vulnerable to rates moving higher. That doesn't mean that credit markets are an unattractive place to be. On the contrary, that just means that there's a lot of opportunities for interesting financing, a lot of opportunities for things that are outside the passive IG index. But it does mean exactly as you just said, that just buying the passive IG or or the passive high yield index just comes with a lot more risk than it has done before, which of course argues for much more thoughtful process going into thinking about, well, what kind of credits should we be looking at? What kind of credits would we want to finance in this environment given not only rates going up but these underlying themes that i mentioned earlier
1: so you did, another great point that you make if duration is eight nine percent we've already seen that us 10-year move by 115 basis points year to date already and it's offering a yield of two so you've wiped off four years worth of income with just the 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 deleterious contribution exactly. duration to the value of the portfolio so i don't think you know if you ask any client out there you know is the risk in your corporate bond portfolio well? you've just wiped off four years of income. So hopefully, you know, you've got some other savings there to and that, draw exactly
0: on That's exactly right, Nick. That's the vulnerability from just buying the passive index. You could buy the passive index and go away for two years and then come back and have a look at it. And normally you would be cutting your coupons in a normal environment that has been giving you a steady stream of income. But the risk is in a rising rates environment, which we have now, and we'll probably have for at least the next at least the next several quarters. Then of course that runs the risk that you get both the duration impact and also, of course, the spread widening, which therefore, as you say, uh, will then come with uh, more significant drawdowns than what you have seen essentially since uh, the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So that's why inflation, and this is the main very important backdrop, again, is the first domino break, the first really important game changer for asset allocation at the moment.
1: Yeah, and add five, 8% inflation to that, and real rates on corporates are looking pretty dismal right now. Um, so it's not Absolutely. surprising we're seeing people look look uh, look a little bit more broadly for options. So Torsten, we're coming up on our time here, and you've, we've talked about a lot of really, really great stuff. And I don't want to like boil all of this into one question, but I'm going to boil all this into one question. So taking it all together, what does this mean for public and private investment opportunities going forward?
0: So uh, let's talk about what the real issues are and the three things that we have, the three broader themes that we have talked about. The first theme is inflation. The second theme is rates going up. And the third theme is volatility. So if we think about what the asset allocation implications are of those three themes, inflation first, and let's just talk about alternatives and uh, private investments. Well, if I think about inflation being a problem, the textbook would tell you, you should buy real assets. You should be buying real estate, Infrastructure, you should buy an energy transition, you should be investing in assets that have long duration cash flows. Things that are, I call it from a gravity perspective, as far away from rates and from public markets and as far away as you can from inflation going up. So that's of course real assets and in the public space that's of course gold and commodities as we also spoke about. But all that of course also feeds into investment decisions when it comes to uh, when we think about infrastructure and energy transition uh, and real assets more broadly. So I say the first theme and the first asset allocation implication is inflation is high, that's creating issues and that's creating therefore these investment implications both on the public side and on the private side. The second thing is rates are going up. Well, and that's of course linked to inflation, but rates going up has its own asset allocation implications because rates going up of course means that you should be in floating rate product, you should be in high grade alpha, you should be in products that are high uh, investment grade to make sure that you are invested in credits that Get through any mild recession that we might be getting and that of course requires again active asset management uh, of course either of course on the private side or of course if you want to do it and, and do the asset allocation decision which of course is hard to do on the public side but on the private side the opportunities also come up because there are of course a lot of financing opportunities that comes with this all this turbulence and all this uh, risk that comes with uh, rates going up and the rates environment still moving higher. So, the second answer to your question is that from a pure asset allocation perspective, I would have in mind well, if rates are going up, I should be in floating rate product and what is interesting in terms of doing that both on the public and on the private side. And the third and final thing is, of course, volatility is high. We spoke about the difference between volatility in fixed income markets relative to an equity market. But when volatility is high, generally speaking, you, and in particular given the significant sell-off we've had in growth and in tech stocks, you wanna be in active stock picking in those things that have become cheap because entry price matters. And suddenly when you have a volatile environment, that's when opportunities start to come up. That's when financings on the equity side also start to come up. And that's exactly why on the volatility side, that's the time to keep your head cool and try to look at What are the things that are out there that are now uh, trading at different prices than what we had even just a few months ago? And what are the opportunities? What are the financing that you can help and assist with? And what are the equity investments that you can help and assist with in a volatile environment? So this is also an argument for investing in, in the private space, of course, in private equity. That's of course where private equity managers have the huge advantage of in a volatile environment, picking through what are the interesting things to look at when volatility is high. So I would say in summary, The major themes that should drive asset allocation at the moment should be what is the impact of inflation on my pie chart as an asset manager, what are the implications of rates going up on my pie chart and what are the implications of volatility persisting because of this uncertainty about how much will the Fed raise rates, how long time will inflation continue.
1: And the fact that the market and the Fed are on different uh, pages right now, just ba- based on you know, expectations of interest rate hikes going forward. So a lot to unpack there. Um, Torsten, this has been fantastic. I hope you appreciated what my green and white uh, shirt in, in honor of Apollo and your, your corporate colors there but how can people follow along with you? Obviously you're on the mo- the major business news networks quite, uh, quite often, but is there any other way people can stay up to date with your thought leadership?
0: Yeah. so getting back to, and maybe squaring the circle here, what you asked about in the beginning, I mean, my job at Apollo is to talk to LPs and investors, and I do one-on-one meetings, we do a podcast, and we also publish outlooks for markets and about asset allocation. So the short answer is uh, reach out to your Apollo sales contact, and uh, we will be more than happy to engage and uh, discuss uh, any of the things we've talked about here or the outlook for markets going forward.
1: Brilliant, Torsten. Uh, this is the first time you've been on and hopefully you'll be a regular guest on uh, the CXO podcast. This has been hugely valuable to uh, not only me, but uh, the broader case network. And we really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for day to really us. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Cheers, Torsten. Thank you. And to everyone who joined, thanks. Uh, remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast. And that concludes things today. Cheers. Apollo
2: Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo, and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature. Due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof, or other variations thereon, or comparable terminology.